Welcome to D-Next, the Innovation and Entrepreneurs Podcast, and I'm your host, Paul Coides. On this episode, we speak with Simon Moss, co-founder of Global Citizen, an international movement with 10 million followers and one powerful idea. We are a global generation. When we come together, big things happen and the world's biggest challenges get smaller. Global Citizen is a social good movement for the global generation. Together, we can make the world a better place for all of us. Your actions can help make sure that governments, businesses and NGOs all play their part. Every action earns you points that can help you win tickets to some of the best concerts, shows and events in the world. Join us and start taking action today. A better world is ours for the making. Simon, thank you for joining us today on D-Next. It uh, truly is uh, an honor to have you with us, so thank you. Thanks very much for having me, Paul. I want to start with a very big question. And I think it has a lot to do with the progress I've seen in the last eight months as the world rushes to create a vaccine in a very short time. My question is, in this day and age of technological and scientific achievement, and amazement that we see. Why do we still have extreme poverty on the planet? Aren't more people dying from extreme poverty every day than COVID-19? We still have extreme poverty because of the choices that we make. Whether they're the choices that you and I make, I'm sitting here to you, uh, talking to you today in Brooklyn, New York. You're in Canada. And most of your listeners, I'm sure, are in, in relatively well-off places around the world. And every day, we make little decisions and big decisions. Little decisions like what bananas to buy, or what type of sugar to buy, or whether or not to uh, contribute money to that charity or support that initiative. And then bigger decisions like who do we want to vote for? and which companies do we want to give our custom to even when we know maybe they don't have the best human rights record or that they don't always follow all the rules and extreme poverty isn't natural and it's not because people in poor countries are lazy or stupid it's because they're victims of a system that doesn't care about them and so we still have extreme poverty today because we collectively, those of us with power and influence, haven't done enough to, to dismantle it. Extreme poverty was, was an inevitable byproduct of, of our system 50 or 100 years ago. But today, there's absolutely no reason why people need to survive on less than $2 a day. There's absolutely none at all. And if we look at just what's happened during this pandemic when the world's 2,000 billionaires have amassed even more wealth. They're now collectively worth more than 10 trillion US dollars. And we look at extreme poverty, where despite 30 years of, of unprecedented progress, at the start of this year, there was still somewhere in the region of 600 million people, about one in 11 of all the people on the planet living in extreme poverty. We're gonna see this year, 100, 150 million people returned to extreme poverty. And if you took just a fraction of that money, 
that the world's richest people had and just handed it as cash to the world's poorest and it disappear overnight. And the reason it exists is because the world's poorest people are trapped in cycles on bad land um, with huge impacts from climate change that they did nothing to create. And they're not able to escape. They don't have access to markets. They don't often have access to the right schools. They don't have a secure food supply. And so we see every year that a couple of million people die just because they're poor. Um, it's about six million children under the age of five, by and large dying from things that we wouldn't even think of as real problems. They die because they're chronically malnourished and they don't have enough good food to eat. They die from diarrhea, something that I know my kids had, I'm sure yours have. And we go, oh, that's really inconvenient. If it gets really bad, maybe you take them to the doctor or a hospital. But it's basically unheard of that in our countries, kids would die from diarrhea. But if they're drinking dirty water and if they don't have a nearby health clinic, no matter how much their parents try to save them, the world's poorest kids don't get to make it. So in short, we have extreme poverty because we have a system that lets it continue and we don't, the people who have power over the system don't do enough to change it. So it seems that we have, theoretically speaking, the apparatus, the capital. Is it really about changing the way we think about poverty around the world? I, I, I'm thinking, is it similar to what we've seen happening in the, the inclusion movement? I mean, do we need to, is it as simple as just changing the way the world thinks about poverty? I think it starts with just changing how we think about poverty. Um, what we've seen in a really wonderful turn of events this year is that, that millions upon millions of people who've been historically left out of our stories, whether they're people of colour or health workers, grocery store workers, people who are often pushed to the margins of society and ignored, suddenly this year in the midst of the pandemic, people go, whoa, wait, that, their, their lives matter, they matter. Or a sudden questioning of, wait, why? Why are we being so mean to people just because of the color of their skin? Why are we, in the case of, of what we've seen happening around the world with the Black Lives Matter movement, so systematically, not just seeing some police murder unarmed people, why are we seeing that routinely it's people of color, and especially in a place like America, black people, who are dying at disproportionate rates of COVID, of heart disease, of diabetes, of all the things that go into what we talk about when we talk about poverty. And to me, I think that the, 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 the hope that comes out of this, this moment that we're all in together is that we've had this shared experience uh, since March or April of 2020 when we realize just how fundamentally interconnected we all are, that I can't hide in a bubble away from everyone else. I depend on everyone everywhere having access to basic healthcare. That I can't do my job if the schools can't run and the schools can't run if those bars are open and the bars can't open if everyone's being irresponsible. And I think to me that that sense of, you know what, we're all in this together is, a microcosm of what's always been 
true, which is that our economies, our climate, our global health is really linked. And that's what a lot of what we do at Global Citizen is all about. Make those connections and then say, rather than despair at how hard that makes everything, look at the hope in what that presents as, as an opportunity, an opportunity for all of us to say, all right, that means if I play my little part, I can actually see some really significant changes when I team up with thousands tens of thousands of other people who believe the same thing. So Global Citizen, uh, and just maybe you can uh, inform me of this, how many people are, are on the platform now? Are there numbers that you can share? Like, So Global Citizen's a, a movement of, of more than 10 million people around the world who are taking action to fight extreme poverty and, and the issues that, that ladder up to it. We follow the, the global goals, this framework, a shopping list of 17 goals that if the world uh, delivered by the year 2030, there'd be uh, no more extreme poverty, a significant uptick in inequality because we would have addressed some of the root causes of inequality. And I think vitally important as, as we, I hope, emerge from this pandemic in the coming months and look to the years ahead, a world that's actually tackled climate change. Uh, because if we think that 2020 has been tough, it's what every year is going to be like in 30 or 40 years time, unless we continue to step up the action that we're taking to create a, a climate safe world. So how did Global Citizen end up in New York City? Why aren't you doing what you do from Australia, from where you came? So as you can probably tell from my accent, I grew up in Australia as did our other co-founders at Global Citizen. And we started out 15 years ago, volunteering in local and community organizations who were doing amazing work. We got involved with a campaign that lots of charities and nonprofits were a part of called uh, Make Poverty History. And through that, we helped to get the Australian government to double the size of their foreign aid program. And we realized that that no matter what number of, of trivia nights or film screenings we ran, no matter how many black tie galas were put on, you could never raise the sort of money that our governments have influence and control over. And actually, when we're talking about the things that make the biggest difference in fighting poverty, our charities can fill the cracks of those left behind. But actually, it's, it's governments whether those are governments in low-income countries who pay for the doctors, the nurses, the schools, the teachers, the roads, that actually are the investments that you need to fight poverty. And to a certain extent, it's, it's governments in places like Australia who both provide a small amount, and it really is a small amount of foreign aid, um, about $150 billion a year around the world globally, but who also set the rules of trillions of dollars worth of global trade and do set the rules how remittances, roughly $700 billion a year of remittances that move between countries, low income countries receiving money from their citizens, family and friends in, in higher income countries. Um, it was these trade patterns, these governance rules and these collections of international cooperation that would make a real difference. And once we realized that we saw that actually the same things that we could talk to young people in Australia about, that we could help mobilise Australian support to get the Australian government to do, was the same as the Canadian government. 
where for many years, young Canadians and Canadians of all ages have been incredibly generous and supportive in, in believing and knowing that they're part of a, of a much bigger world and a much bigger system and have been standing up and calling for both their government to do the right thing and calling for others to do as much as they can. And just two quick examples I want to give. But it was 50 years ago this year that uh, a former Canadian Prime Minister, a guy named Lester Pearson, um, ran a commission at the United Nations when the UN tasked with this job of world peace. Seems like a crazy panacea, seems like an unachievable dream. They ran the numbers and in an economic study said if all of the world's rich countries gave just 0.7% of their gross national income each year, um, that is keeping 99.3% of the money for themselves and giving 0.7% to the world's poorest countries, you could end extreme poverty in a generation. There was a Canadian Prime Minister who led that. It was a target that was adopted by all of the UN uh, countries, including Australia, including America, including Britain. And it's the standard that only a handful of countries meet today. And aid has made such a huge contribution to reducing poverty in the last couple of generations. But because so few countries have, have made that target and have spent their money well, you're still seeing way more people dying of preventable diseases than you need. And that's something that I'm really proud of, of Canadians continuing to stand up for. Over the last few years, Canada's been a real leader on, on some of these issues. And this isn't a pro-liberal party or a pro-conservative party stance. Former Prime Minister Harper, led something called the Muskoka Initiative, which put 10 billion Canadian dollars over a decade into fighting child deaths and reducing maternal deaths. And it was one of the most important things that Global Health had done. One of the big things he backed was this amazing initiative called the Global Fund. The Global Fund's about HIV, AIDS, TB and malaria, which upon becoming Prime Minister, um, Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party decided to double down on. Um, and I'm really pleased that it was the Canadian government who chaired the 2016 Global Fund replenishment. We at Global Citizen got in alongside them and they raised a record-breaking amount of money, which now, as we look back on it four years later, actually saved the lives of somewhere in the region of three to four million people because of the money that the Canadian government, not spent by itself, but helped get all of the world to put together. Rich folks like Bill Gates coming together with um, the people who purchase red products when they're out shopping through to governments around the world, pooling their money to drive down the cost of life-saving malaria prevention treatments, to drive down the cost of life-saving HIV AIDS drugs that have collectively over the last 15 years saved 20 million lives and just in the last three or four saved more than three. So politically, in your opinion, has the world evolved in this regard in the decade that Global Citizen has been around? Have you seen a change compared to what it was like when you first started this? So when we first started Global Citizen about 10 years ago, um, we ran a presentation called 1.4 Billion Reasons. Uh, we actually ran one of our very first presentations um, at Danforth Hall in Toronto. Um, uh, with the support of Centennial College and others. And in the presentation, which was called 1.4 Billion Reasons, we talked about how at that time there were 1.4 billion people trapped in extreme poverty. 
And we talked about how that had come down from around 2 billion 15 years earlier. The last 10 years saw the fastest fall in extreme poverty the world's ever seen. Because you might recall just before, the estimate that the World Bank and others had was about 600 million people as of the start of 2020. So that's 2010 to 2020, 800 million people uh, lifted out of extreme poverty. That is truly phenomenal. And so what I think we've seen over the last decade is, is this realization from uh, vast numbers of people that actually change is possible. That while the newspapers will always be full of stories about how crap everything is because that's what the news is, actually the rise of social media has given us a chance to see beyond those initial headlines. And it's given us a chance to make those connections. And we see that especially amongst young people. But what we've also seen, partly because of social media, partly because of the political polarization that so many of us have seen, and partly because this great boom that came to an end with, the, with COVID earlier this year, actually was, if not tearing us apart, then dragging us apart that some people were massive winners over the last decade and a lot of people including in countries like Canada were getting left behind and so it's really not a surprise that you've seen the rise of movements that are saying actually wait no we don't think that's fair we feel like we're getting left behind my government isn't treating me with the respect the dignity the investment that I think I deserve and so I think what we've seen is is both remarkable progress on one hand and a greater sense of connection and collaboration than you've ever had before but you've also seen that the growth of this this movement of people saying wait no that that doesn't feel like the world i'm in and i think you've seen that really come to the fore during COVID. i've been here in new york throughout the pandemic and i can tell you that there are a couple of weeks in march and april when you couldn't do a phone call you certainly couldn't do an interview like this without being disrupted by sirens. And the reason was that there are so many people in America who don't have health insurance and so who can't go to the doctor without having to pay an arm and a leg. And so they stayed at home. They didn't want to get tested until it was a real emergency. There are so many people working in marginal jobs, earning minimum wage or sometimes less because they're not fully documented, who had to go to work because that's the only way they could put food on the table and those symptoms of a system that benefits some and leaves out many is the same system that does that whether you're a wealthy new yorker and a not so wealthy new yorker or whether you're an american or canadian and a farmer in malawi and I think that what I hope, or what I hope we can take out of this, this year is this sense that actually, we've got to make sure that everyone's got access to healthcare, to opportunity, to education in Canada, in America, and in a place like Malawi, because all of us have that sense of connection. And when you tell a story like that, and when you break it down in those ways, we almost never see that, that people oppose the idea of helping people everywhere they just want to make sure that helping abroad doesn't come at the expense of helping at home and that all too often what our governments and what our leaders will do without all of us standing up and shouting for it 
is not help anyone anywhere. And for us, that's the opportunity that, that we as citizens have. This idea of being a global citizen is, is about saying, hey, I'm a citizen of where I grew up, in my case, Australia. I'm a citizen by birth of Britain, a place that I lived for many years. I've lived in America for the last six years. I feel, although I'm not legally a citizen, very much a part of America. But I'm also a citizen who owes, has an obligation and, and wants to act in a way that's globally responsible. And I think that at that level, the last decade has, has shown us all the more that this idea of being a global citizen doesn't have to come at the expense of being a local citizen, being a local church member, being a, a strong supporter of your local football or hockey club. It's just one more identity that we can wear with honor and wear with pride and say, hey, I want to make sure that everyone everywhere gets a fair go. And you may be more of a global citizen than others. You, you've dedicated the majority of your adult life to this and you could be doing probably anything with your talent, which is obvious from what you've done with Global Citizen with your team and, and your intellect. Is this a calling for you? Could you be doing something else? Um, I'm sure I could be doing something else. And at times I'm sure my parents preferred I did. But what I think um, I see is that, that calling connotes some sort of specialness about what all of this is. And, and that's just not really how I see it because all of us make lots of little choices every day. We don't even think about some of them. Um, and actually, you don't have to feel called or compelled or motivated, whether it's by faith or anything else, to, to just choose to make some decisions that are slightly different. And so while this is a set of issues that I'm passionate about, um, actually some of the most remarkable people who, who I encounter have their callings in other ways, but who just make it a small part of their day to try and do the right thing in their local community and in their global community. And that actually the world doesn't need full-time people doing this like me, because actually in a, in a really functioning world, global citizen wouldn't need to exist. Because as we started our conversation saying extreme poverty wouldn't exist. And so what I'd love to see and, and what I see all over the country and certainly when I spend time in in Canada and when I've spent time recently in, in Toronto and Montreal and, and, and Vancouver, uh, people just making little choices that are, that are right for them. What I want to do is make some of those little choices easier. Um, and what I would hope all of us can do is, is just make it part of our everyday habit, is to buy something that's a bit more ethically sourced that we know comes from somewhere that was, was helping to fight poverty, um, that we give a little bit of money when we can, or we volunteer our time when we can to support organizations, whether they're local uh, food pantries and soup kitchens or, or global NGOs doing amazing work. That we use our vote at the ballot box and use our political voice, not just to speak up for what's best for me personally, but for me and my community, my country and, and my planet. And that if we take the example of climate change, we see that our lives could be upended by it and that the actions that I take individually will make a little bit of a difference. But the ability I've got to influence others, to encourage them to make 
the same sorts of actions, whether that's just eating red meat three times a week instead of five times a week to reduce carbon emissions, whether that's driving a car that is less environmentally destructive or flying a little bit less, um, or whether that's switching to, to green energy and making sure that um, if I'm going to use electricity, which I certainly know I do, I get it from hydroelectric or, or solar rather than from a coal-fired power station. These are all little decisions that we can make. And for those of us who have little bits of money in pension funds, making sure that our money is not sitting against fossil fuel companies whose business models rely on digging up dead dinosaurs and burning them and heating the atmosphere. But instead, we take the same money and we pick funds or we just move which part of the existing funds we've got that our money goes into that says, hey, put the money into solar, put the money into wind, put the money into renewables. Because I tell you what, this isn't a greenie decision. This is clearly where the money is going to have to go in the next 30 years. And I'd much sooner be early into solar energy than I'd be the last guy left in coal. And I think these are the types of decisions that everyone can make. And, and you don't have to feel like you've got a calling to do it. You can just do it because it's something that piques your interest and it's easy and very, very low cost and, and low effort to be able to do. So on that note, another well-known global citizen is Hugh Jackman, among many others. How important was his involvement in the movement in the early days? How did that change things or did it? So at Global Citizen, we're incredibly fortunate to have a lot of strong relationships with uh, people who are well-known and celebrities and artists. And Hugh Jackman was amongst one of the, the first. As a, as a fellow Australian, we got to know him a little bit before we'd started Global Citizen. And I think what we see repeatedly is that people like Hugh recognise they've got a, a voice, they've got a reach that I, as everyday guy, I'm not going to ever have. Um, as interesting as I hope I can be, Hugh Jackman's an X-Man. And that's just going to be way more popular. And I think that we've just been so pleased to see so many people like Hugh step in and say, hey, I'm not an expert. I don't feel like I've got a calling to, to be some kind of world-saving, amazing Greta Thunberg type. But I am a regular guy who cares. And to the extent I can share my platform with experts, with people who know what can make a real difference, then, hey, I want to do that. And so for us, working with Hugh and, and many others like him has, has been a huge part of building a model that can reach millions and millions of people. Um, because ultimately, it's the little actions of everyone, whether you're a celebrity or whether you're uh, just an X-Man fan, that uh, can make a big difference. As the next generation of entrepreneurs begins to rise, how do you see the core philosophy of Global Citizen um, counterbalancing with people who are determined to make a profit, which is what entrepreneurs tend to do? Do you think there is a, a different way of looking at that going forward? I just am curious about your thoughts on that. We spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs um, because they tend to be attracted to, to big ideas. They tend to want to like change the world. And a lot of what we're talking about is a lot of what entrepreneurs talk about. They're talking about how do you change the system? What I'm encouraged by is that many of those entrepreneurs, they, they want to do good. Uh, yeah, their primary motivator might be to make money or to make their idea the biggest thing in the world. But when we sit down with them, they're often saying, okay, so I want to do good as I do this. How do I do that? 
And we'll have some challenging conversations at times when we'll talk about sometimes making decisions that in the short term might not be commercially advantageous or, or the fastest way to scale. But if you zoom out a little bit and you say, think of the world in 2050, it's 30 years time. I hopefully will be retired and chilling out. Um, these entrepreneurs will often be getting to their more senior years as well. What kind of world are we going to have? What are the bets that we can all make? And, and we know that there'll be 9 billion people on the planet, maybe 10. We know that unless we act like now, the planet will be a couple of degrees warmer and that'll have all sorts of implications. Um, we know that China will have risen and relatively America and Canada and Europe will have declined a little bit. And we can think, well, what sort of future are we leaving our kids? What sort of legacy are we going to leave? What sort of retirement are we going to enjoy? And actually, if you then start going, what sort of business would I want to have by the year 2050 that's got real long-term value? You start realizing that there's not a difference between what the right economic decisions are and what the right social decisions are. Because the only sort of economy that thrives is one that's, that's safe and inclusive. And no better example of that than this year, our economies are being devastated because we haven't put enough investment into ensuring the health and inclusion of everyone. There's a reason that America's death rate is significantly higher than Canada's. And that's got to do with policies that are generations long in the making. It's got to do with who doesn't doesn't get healthcare. It's got to do with who doesn't doesn't have to go to work when they're sick. It's got to do with who doesn't doesn't have enough money saved in the bank so that they don't go hungry and are forced to make a crazy decision. And it's got to do with whether or not there's money being invested in, in protecting the health of everyone everywhere before they get to the hospital. And so when we chat to entrepreneurs at that level, they say, yeah, I got it. All right, I wanna do something. Now, some of them will say, I wanna do something later. And that's a real challenge. Uh, as a quick example, this year, we partnered with Forbes, uh, the Fantastic Wealth magazine, um, to add an element to their Forbes 400. Every year they have this uh, ranking where they get the 400 richest people in America and like, here's how much they're worth. Over the last few years, they've done a philanthropy score. And the philanthropy score says, here's how much money they gave away. The problem is that it wasn't really measuring how much money they gave away. It was measuring how much money they let go of and maybe they put it into a thing called a donor advised fund which they still control can still accumulate capital and interest and growth against but it's not really doing anything maybe they put it into a foundation with their name on it that isn't actually spending any of the money so we work with forbes this year to change the way they measure philanthropy and now focus on how much money have you actually given as a proportion of your overall wealth because a million dollars is a hell of a lot more to me than it is to jeff bezos and say all right how, how is it out in the world doing good? How much have you actually given to organizations who are spending it to go do the things that need to be done now? Because in a world where quite literally things are on fire and people are dying, you shouldn't have a foundation or philanthropy that is just gonna sit there for 20 years and grow. And we've been really pleased to see that a lot of really rich folks are starting to say, yeah, you know what? I've got to spend my money faster couple of them have gotten together and said, you know what, I've got to give all my money away in the next 10 years because what's the point in having it? A billionaire named Chuck Feeney actually gave away the very last of his money this year 
He's been at it for 30 years. He's given away about $8 billion. He lives in a one-bedroom apartment. Because he's like, what more do I need? And to me, that's an example that I'd love to see even more entrepreneurs step into and follow. Okay, so final thought and last question. And on that note, what do you think is the Mm. single most important thing people should know or do to be a global citizen in 2021? So I think that'll be slightly different for everyone. So the short answer is go to globalcitizen.org, learn, find your own place in what you'd like to do. But knowing a bit about some of your audience and, and who they are, what I think everyone needs to do next year is help take that fear that we all felt this year, that um, worry about our families and our friends and our communities and our country and ask the never again question. How do we avoid having to feel like that again? And how do we avoid not just us having to feel that personally, but people everywhere all over the planet having to feel it? Because I think that the answers will often be about spending a little bit more now to make sure that there's more opportunity, more hope, more possibility for everyone everywhere. Because actually, for years, people like Bill Gates were saying there's a pandemic coming. We don't know when, we don't know where, but it'll come. And the world was too cheap to pony up the money to prepare for it properly. And now we've seen what the consequences are on our health, on our economy, and I think really importantly on the fabric of our society. So what I'd ask everyone to do is say, hold that feeling and then think, okay, what do I want to do differently? Because it'll be real easy when we all get a vaccine, I hope sometime next summer to be able to go have one blowout party, move on and forget about it. And I think that would be a big mistake. Okay, Simon Moss, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Paul. Take care. Thanks for listening. For more information on Global Citizen or to hear more interviews from this series, please visit us at dnextnow.com. Until next time. People around the world are desperate to return to work, school, and see their loved ones. Now, the only way we'll be able to do this, the only way we will be able to open up our economies back up is by ensuring COVID-19 treatments are available to all. Now, we need a movement of global citizens calling on governments, corporations and philanthropists to make the investments needed to end the COVID-19 era. There are labs full of the best scientists all over the world racing to develop COVID-19 tools and treatments at great speed, but we have a long way to go. And that's why I'm joining Global Citizen and the European Commission today to encourage everyone to take action in support of the global goal, Unite for Our Future campaign.